I think they were onto some way of healing and actually manipulating electricity through the body. I think that was probably the main purpose. But one of the the, uh, the benefits of electrifying the pharaoh's uh, sperm. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grime America show. We are going to be chatting with James Ernest Brown a little bit later about uh, electrocuting your semen in Egypt. But first, as always, oh, we're talking to Ephraim, our buddy Ephraim here. He's going to join us later in the intro. But first, as always, Graham, five finger toes, Dunlop. How's it going, buddy? Hit. I knew you were going to use that. I you just happened it. to slip it out a couple seconds ago. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, so no, it's ancient Egyptians. Don't forget to say the ancient part. It's implied. It's implied. Is it? It's implied. What about if it, people modern Egyptians think it's about them? What about if you talk into your mic? <laughs> so uh, Ephraim's coming on. Yeah, his new book. I, I listened to it. Actually, I, it's not a real audio book, but I listened to it on PDF, and it was great. Phobian dreams. Looking it's not a, a real audio book. With Ephraim about that. I think Ephraim would disagree. No, no, he, I, I listened to the PDF. I didn't, uh, he's probably got an audio book coming out for it. Mm, I see. Yeah, I, I'm waiting for the audio book. I really like audio books. I really like this chat with James Brown. Or I need the real book. I can't read a PDF. What, am I going to print it? I guess I could print it. No, I'm not going to print it. I need a book. I'm a book guy book or tape well with our lack of time here i take the pdf and just copy it into my app and listen to it phobian dreams yeah phobian how does it say phobian i don't know actually i could probably find it so what'd you think of our chat with james brown though pretty cool eh? did you like the book uh yeah it was interesting for sure let's see what we got here Phobian. Ooh, that was pretty good. Hmm. I can't find it on here. That's funny. Keep talking. Oh, here it is. Ephraim Palermo. <laughs> it even adds a little Puerto Rican flair. Ephraim Palermo. Ephraim Palermo. Okay, we're recording. What are you doing? Well, you asked me to find out how she pronounces phobian. Well, I figured it out. I figure Siri's pretty much the same thing, if not better. Hmm. What do you got? Okay, go ahead and no, do I your thing. I can't, no, do, it. Find I can't it. do it. No. That's the problem with this app is you can't really get to the beginning of it. So sorry for everybody listening here, but this is part of the lazy ramblings of Gramerica. If you're not interested, you can fast forward to the timestamp and the Graham show slowed down the show didn't love. <laughs> Graham, slow down the show, Dunlop. Oh, my God. <laughs> what are you doing over there? there, jerking off your phone? <laughs> Forget it. Yeah. <laughs> You've ruined it. Oh, go to page one. Graham, mm. slow down the show, Dunlop. A lake, but the water would recede if he tried to quench his... Oh, what the... Phobia? Phobia dreams Graham, slow Palermo down the awake. There it is. Efren Palermo. Phobian sounded okay, but she cannot compete with Siri on the. Phobian dreams. Efren Palermo three awaken me. Yeah, I got it on. I, I'm, I got it pretty fast. Dialed in pretty fast. You did? Yeah. Oh, I thought you meant you got to that quickly. No. I was going to say you absolutely did not. No. It took you almost four minutes to 
pull that off. Sorry, really? Yeah. No way. Can you edit that out? No. <laughs> no. Graham fumbled the ball down low. So anyway, what do you got? What's well, I got new? some feedback. People saying you should take like it easy on me a little bit. I should take it easy yeah. on you? Yeah. These people are voting for Bernie. I, I don't know. It's not a political <laughs> thing. It's just a yeah. you know, take it easy on Graham thing, you know? Sometimes. I think I do take it easy on you. Yeah? I can't completely take it easy on you. No, I know. We'd lose our flair. I got some feedback here from... Uh, Graham is an all-in-believer in, yeah, in chemtrails. He just interrupted me. That's Did what they're talking about. Did you see any chemtrails? No, I didn't. <laughs> when you were skydiving? No. Someone commented on the YouTube video that they seen chemtrails in the background and that the earth was flat. <laughs> oh, I saw that one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you say to that? I don't know. Did you see the thing with the earth flat with the, with the smoke coming up? from a tr the difference between the smokestack on a train that's moving and then like a st static smokestack coming through the clouds from no. a ground-based thing and they're saying that it wouldn't be coming straight up because the earth is supposed to be moving so is the atmosphere is that what it is <laughs> are you asking me <laughs> <laughs> okay. when are you going to have the flat earther on I don't know if I want to get into it. You don't want to get into it? You find them. It's a debate. No, I don't want Eric Debay, something like that. I'm not going to do it. No, I don't really. I don't I'm not into it. If someone really wants to, send me his email address. Because I know we do have listeners that will be cussing me out. If we what? Already. We're mocking the flat earth theory. Really? Yeah. There's a few. We're, well, we're do you know idiots. that we have booked somebody come on about geocentrism, though? That Do documentary. Who's yeah. that? KT and Rick Delano, I think. KT? Yeah. Kelly Thomas? Kelly Tom? No, it's just KT. KT something. K-T-E-E. -E. Oh. Yeah. So anyways, it, it'll be interesting. It'll be very Geocentricism? Sort of yeah. So that... They did a documentary with all these scientists and stuff. It's pretty intriguing. That say the sun and everything's revolving around us? Yeah. Sure. Like we're the center of the universe. But, but round. <laughs> but th then we would eclipse Jupiter once in a while, wouldn't we? All the time. What? I feel like it's easy to disprove that with my own telescope. This will be fun. Yeah. We need a telescope. I took mine to the dump. Really? Yeah. It's that bad that you took it? I thought it was pretty good. I can't believe uh, you just threw it away. No, nah, it got banged up. Oh, really? What a shocker. <laughs> it was always a free off Kijiji thing. I scooped it off someone's porch for free. <laughs> so it was like, uh, it wouldn't stay in focus whenever you got it focused. We've talked about this on the show yeah, before. Yeah, let's just, yeah. let's just leave it. So we need a telescope so that we can prove that the Earth is not the center of the solar system. Ugh. Don't we'll waste my summer proving that the Earth is round and that the sun is, and that the Earth is not the center of it. <laughs> nice. So I've been going back and forth with uh, Luke from uh, from Australia. A little bit about lucid dreaming and stuff like that. So he was asking me how it's going with the lucidamine. 
Is it real or a dream? Whoa, 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 whoa. What does that <laughs> even mean? So anyways, he says... Uh, Talking to the wife? Still loving the show, man. That Carl Johan Kalaman was a bit out there with his downloading new consciousness or whatever he called it. For me, I tend to lean towards Graham Hancock explanation that civilization emerged limping from the last ice age around 11,000 years ago and started to rebuild rapidly because they were using technology that existed before the ice age because civilization and technology haven't just existed in the last incarnation of humanity. These large jumps in human experience that Carl spoke of could just as easily be explained by a critical mass of technology, consciousness, etc. Building up, yeah, building up in humanity until it bursts out in the form of a rapid change in civilization. Well, that makes sense to me, anyways. Also, tell Darren he's making me fucking jealous about his legal weed deliveries. Here in Oz, we're way too backward to consider anything like that, and I've been out of the pot arena for about fifteen years since I was a teenager, as it's not worth getting caught. But recently, I've been hearing about the great results people are getting from both smoking it and taking cannabis oil for everything from anxiety to cancer. We even have people here that illegally produce cannabis oil to distribute to cancer patients and other really sick people because the results are worth the risk of getting caught. Bloody stupid that it's illegal only because the government hasn't worked out how to tax it yet. I paid GST. Yeah. You were happy. That's the happiest GST payment you've ever made, eh? Yeah, seven dollars fifty cents. Anyway, that's about all I got to say. So I'll catch you around. P.S. I'm loving my chemtrail ringtone. It makes for good conversation starter when people hear it. Luke Graham is an. <laughs> so thanks, Luke. Um, yeah, I'm Darren's actually smoking actually- two different blends right now. I'm smoking a Three Sisters Dairy Queen. That's coming in at about twenty three point six THC, maybe one point five CBD. And this other one here is my Odin number three sour diesel. Odin. Odin. Like O-D-I-N. the god. Like the god. Yeah. Oh jeez. And that's coming in around twenty five point six THC and 05 percent CBD. And uh, both are sativas. You seem a little more energized. Yeah, they'll keep you going. I want to be clear that the one I have really in the house is called the ambition pot use right i mean you should use ambition for the show i do advocate well i don't i mean people can do what they want with their consciousness but i'm not a partaker in it so it's not like this show is based around that i just want to make people clear because i do have a clip to play actually about this it's pretty good (coughs) segue to that there you go igloo's pretty small though (laughs) (laughs) and airtight (laughs) um and then i have my indica for before bed a nice Stokes Quirkle, twenty-seven point six THC, hmm. and uh, so you've got your. This is you, now you've ordered your stuff, right? And you've now. paid the taxes, and it comes here. Like you've, you've ordered, ordered from your menu, it comes here. I ordered twenty-five or something like that. I, from, so from my the my prescription is for now that. That's the one thing is not the government. It's all privatized. Right, right. Sorry. Uh, yeah, why do I think it's from the government? I don't know. A lot of people think that, though, and they're like, oh, the government's just going to fuck it up. But, like, the government's just allowing it. At this point, I buy it from someone, uh, Alberta-based private company. Yeah, why do I think it's the government? So, just because of medical, because you're, you're medical, because you didn't pay for the appointment that you went to. No, I'm medical. So, you went to the appointment healthcare. for free, health care. And I have my card. I now got my card with my first shipment. Right. So I have my medical user card, 
which entitles me. And you even me, got right? a little, a little, a, pa- a, a plate to, to, to do your stuff on. Yeah. A little fancy, like, advertised plate. Like. And it all comes with, uh, they send some stickers. And each, uh, it comes in bundles of five or ten grams, and they each come in a little airtight, sealed container. Why do they change the, the distributing, the, the, the amount? It's five or ten, and that's it. Why, why? I don't know, eight why bucks a gram three and across and the board. seven, like the old days? Well, they, they, they don't care. Is it because we're in the it's metric not, system? It's not like that anymore, yeah. It's because metric, No, right? it's still grams. I buy it. Well, no, yeah, it's metric. Well, three and a half grams is an eighth. That's what it used to be, right? So yeah, now, so now I just five buy them for five of... grams for 40 bucks. Plus, there's two bucks GST on that or something like that, or a buck of GST, and then the delivery's free next Well, day. I hope it helps your insomnia and your allergies and all the other crazy shit you got going on. That's right, my headaches. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you play that clip for you, like, if you want to know... Did you send it what, to me? What kind of podcast do you think we are anyways here? What kind of podcast? Oh, you, you're not even set up for it. What'd you, did you send it to me? <laughs> did you email it? I did email it, yeah. <clears throat> what kind of podcast do I think we are? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe we're the type that this guy describes. Go to 929 on this. Oh, that's what that was. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I don't know. A crazy one. Well produced. Yeah. Alberta's climate leadership plan. No the right way. thing to do for our health, environment, and economy. Climate Alberta. There wasn't one for when climate I Climate Alberta. 929. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. This, is, this was sent to me from a friend of mine who's like, oh man, I was listening to this podcast and I swear they were giving you guys a dig. <laughs> they were talking about us. And I'm slightly offended because I don't even you know, partake in this part of the show. They're cutting us down? No, not really. Ugh, this is fucking impossible to get to stop at the right spot here. Nine thirty one? Nine twenty nine. Will nine thirty one work? Mm, possibly. Ugh. It's a good thing we don't play a lot of clips. This is fucking retarded, man, trying to move this stupid little red ball to 929. You should have had this queued up and cut. Ah! <laughs> Every time I think I have it, I don't. 957. Yeah, 914. That's the problem with YouTube. So we're, we're, we're taking it in from nine ten, and I'm just not going to turn it up until it gets to nine twenty five. So I, I use some of the. Are you talking? Yeah, you got twenty seconds. Plus or minus twenty one seconds. These people get me miffed at times. So. Well, you know, we don't. We get a little wild with on Caravan at midnight, but you know, we don't. We don't do like some of the some of the guys out there do. They sound like they're. Oh no. You know, you can hear the bong bubbling in the background and they're dropping F-bombs all over the place. And I, I don't want to do any of that, but it's safe. It's funny, they were talking at 5 o'clock in the morning. It turns out it was 5 o'clock in the morning and nobody got shot at or shot until SWAT got there. Well, I have to play it. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, you'll have to edit a bit of that rigmarole out from the beginning. That's fine. No. 
What do you got? Well, we're gonna we're gonna bring Efren in here soon, but I do have another synchronicity if you wanna just go through it here. I'm a rambling gram with synchronicities all over the web. And Aaron is skeptical about everyone and don't believe it yet. Alrighty. This is from our friend Cosmo. He says, Hi, Graham. I had the impetus to write something down for you today as this is fresh. So for consideration in your synchronicity section of Gramerica. Nice word. Yeah. Years ago, I said to myself, perhaps, just perhaps, there is no such thing as coincidence. My Western upbringing means I was traditionally skeptical of such an idea, but I have kept considering it in hindsight at random moments and being aware of another possibility. Now, over 10 years since I first considered that, I noticed stuff like this. One day, for whatever reason, and that is the question, why this day, I pulled on a brand new t-shirt from an old stash of merch from a campaign I had not been active with for a few years. In my head, it was because I couldn't be bothered to find a clean t-shirt and the box was easy access. And I still support the message on its front. Later that day, having had contact with the campaign having not had contact with the campaign for years i'm sitting down at my computer with the campaign slogan against imperialist intervention in south america written across my chest as i open my messages an old friend from that very campaign had written to me hours ago about an upcoming meeting he'd like me to be at point is those t-shirts have been in my house for years yet the day i put one on i get contacted by a friend from the campaign directly Another time, well, today, and why I'm writing you now. Earlier today, I got back home, loads of heavy food shopping to drop down when I got in the door, and between putting the bags down and starting to put the food away and the beers in the fridge, I decided I want to listen to some music. Nothing I've been listening to recently, something that I hadn't heard in a while. I quickly scanned my rows of hundreds of CDs for something still there and not in a pile elsewhere that hasn't been put back. Love that's Arthur Lee's band, is the first that pulls my attention. So I grab the album, De Capital, classic 1960s stuff. Still sounds amazing. Listen to the bass lines on the castle. Anyway, food now away, the album's still on, I open my computer and eventually load Twitter. I see that one of my longtime friends has been rehearsing with Johnny Eccles, the lead guitarist of Love, earlier that day for a gig in two days' time. We were both fans of Love, but he had never mentioned anything about me to this previously. R.I.P. Arthur Lee, who passed away in 2006. The music will never die. If synchronicity is the opposite of coincidence, what do we have going on here, Darren and Graham? I also find it interesting that these two cases involve people I know and who I thought about but had not spoken to directly. I love those little... It's like a little glitch in the Matrix, I find, or something. I've had a week of uh, those types of things going on. I no, uh, The first one was better. But I'm not going to rate them. No? Yeah. It won't be great. I got another one, but I'm going to save the it The first one will be show. okay. Yeah. The first one will be like a seven. See, it's just not powerful unless you're in the moment and you're doing it for you. For you, you have to be the one doing it. Tell me yours. Well, no, I mean, I told you about the one that I had with Mike, but that was in the middle of a string of them, right? Like, I had this mm-hmm. intuition to close the... I don't even want to tell you. Go on. Come on, meow. No. Come on, meow. 
that's the funny thing. It's got to do with the out. I had the I had this fucking feeling, right? Because I was packing to move, and so I had this feeling that I needed to uh, close the sliding door. And I was like, okay, I should follow my intuition because usually I leave the door open for my cat all day long. Why are you tapping your head? So I, f- I close the door. I just, think I'm, I just think I'm going to just like follow this, like this thing. I should close the door today. I get home from work like 10 hours later. Zeus is trapped out on the balcony. I'd locked him out that day. So like it's not always good intuition. Like I've been led astray a couple times in the last week with intuition. Well, maybe Zeus needed a reminder. Maybe. <laughs> That's a way to look at it. <laughs> trying to knock that cat down a peg. He was trying to get it all day. appreciate it. Yeah, he was, just, he was just scatterbrained when I got home. He was just like, oh, oh, his voice was all harsh. He couldn't even Fuck meow you. anymore. Fuck you. Yeah. Keep talking. So, yeah, that was, um, I can't remember the other ones now, but there was definitely like five or six similar that I had all week. So we should bring uh, Ephraim in, unless you want to talk about uh, art and stuff like that, Darren. Art, yeah, we could do all that with Ephraim. Okay. All right, I'll give him a shot. Bring him in. Bring him on in. Should we drum roll him in? Ephraim was our first guest ever. And since then, he's written a couple books, and he's doing, like, ice spiking experiments. He's a novelist, hey, hey, guys. Hey, Ephraim, how you doing? Amateur helicopter builder. That's right. What's up, guys? Imp. Not much, man. We're just struggling through this intro. It's been a pretty choppy one. Oh, okay. So, so we figure we should get you in here. Yeah, let's do it. Smooth it out. Uh, <laughs> hey, by the way, I saw you guys' video and that jump, that parachute thing. That's crazy. Oh, man. That's good. Thanks. Yeah, we wanted to mention that, actually, that we did go fucking skydiving the other day, and, and it's on YouTube. Yeah, so the YouTube video, man, it's like, that was really well done. Yeah, James Nation, our buddy, and, and Nads, they videotaped us doing it. They were great. They are hanging out of the plane waiting for us to jump. It was crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was good. You want to hear on my phone? It says Ephraim Palermo, Ephraim. What was that? Ephraim Palermo. <laughs> my phone has a like better, ac- better accent than me. <laughs> <laughs> I like that sexy voice, too. There you go. All right, man. Hey, so uh, Phobia and Dreams, man, my, my book finally came out. Boom. Great. Is, it, is my signed copy in the mail? <laughs> <laughs> it will, yeah, yeah. Down this way. Beauty. Yeah, it was good, Efren. I liked it. It was it was really entertaining. I don't know. You've, I think you've got the little the knack there for, for that type of writing. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's getting better, you know. I'm improving with my writing skills and how I'm getting across, and and I this kind of interesting writing this one because it was just supposed to be like a real short short story, you know. Like I'm talking like maybe a thousand words, you know. And uh, but as soon as I started writing it, it's like no way. This is like it's got more to it. You know? And it even seems short to me, actually. Yeah, I, f- yeah, I felt I felt like it, it could have been longer. Like you could have made yeah. it like another like fifty percent longer. Oh, totally. How many pages? Yeah. It's like 169 pages. Oh, yeah, okay. But I, I packed a lot into it. You know, I kind of like this real quick, you know, read through it. And like when you're done, you're going, whoa, there could be a lot more. But, uh, you know, that's the nature of a short story, right? Just kind of like give you a little taste of something that you want more of. 
But give, give us a taste of what it what it is like. What 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 it's about without spoiling it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that that'd be hard to do. But but what it is? Well, when I first started writing it, the idea was for this contest, and uh, the the parameters were to, it's going to be about NASA, set fifty years in the future, but it couldn't be anything controversial. You know, it couldn't be anything you know conspiratorial. You know, just a straightforward thing. But as soon as I started writing, I said, no way. Right away, it's kind of went outside those parameters, right? And uh, but, but what, what it came to be was uh, an expression of my experience with NASA and what happened with my uh, streaks on Mars and the water stains announcement that NASA made, right? Because my paper had predated that 14 years earlier and already had talked about this. And uh, when NASA made this announcement, people were calling me up. Hey, you know, they're talking about your, your work, you know, but of course I didn't get any, any mention. And uh, so I kind of threw that in. My character was kind of part of that, right? Yeah. Uh, but another thing, too, is, is uh, the, the division between the layman and established scientists and, and the science, you know, uh, you know the, the click that they have, right? Not just the layman, but the inventor layman, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyone outside that, that little circle, uh, you know, if you don't get peer reviewed, uh, you, you know, you don't exist. So, so the character of my story is this guy who's kind of like, like autistic, kind of came like from the slums of, of Costa Rica, but he's like a genius, right? And he discovers this way to get into space using uh, magnetics. And so the whole story revolves around this, his struggle and what happens when he gets to space. And, uh, you know, so I, so I, but I put in, you know, everything that, that we, we kind of talk about in America and stuff, you know, kind of Asian alien stuff. And, uh, but the story took a life of its own as I started writing it. And uh, anyway, it's a great story and it's, it's a lot of action in it, a little bit of sex, not a whole lot, you know. But uh, more love, more love and sex, probably. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's like the, so the it's love. It's not sex, it's just not just sex, it's love making. It's like a love story with like high technology, the dark web, and like consciousness and pot smoking and space travel. Yeah, and yeah. All mixed in. <laughs> yeah, all mixed in together, right? It's and like I, space Miami Vice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the whole thing kind of grew organically, you know, because I just started writing this character and this love interest came, came about. And then uh, uh, this thing about this uh, Phobos, right? It's the main part of the story, which was one of the moons of Mars. And of course, I had to bring in my monolith of Phobos into it. And uh, I thought it's pretty interesting how it kind of tied into the story and the history of Phobos. And, and in the story, part of it is that, cause, you know, there's, the, there's this idea that Phobos might be hollow. And part of the story is that inside Phobos, aliens were growing pot, right? This alien pot, uh, which brought them into a higher level of consciousness. Anyway, so it's kind of interesting how that kind of tied into that. But, uh, yeah, it's got a lot of action, a lot of, a lot of technology. And, but, but the idea, too, that came about is, is what would happen is if one can go into space as easily as getting into your car and going across town, uh -huh. right? Because right now, you know, of course, going into space is, is relegated to either governments like NASA or rich guys, you know, that can afford to do that. And the reason is because of the, te the technology that is existing right now to get into space, you know, but what if instead of using all these chemical propulsion systems, there was something that can get you into space as easily as, as driving a car, you know, and then the question comes about, if space was open to anyone to go into it, what would happen? 
you know, what kind of society, what would, what would occur if anyone could go into space? So I kind of bring that up in, in the story, right? So it's kind of part of the whole fabric of it. Yeah. Well, are you going to have it on audio at all? Yeah, eventually I want to do that, uh, the same way I did with Alien Cartel. Yeah, good. And uh, Anyway, so, so far, like... But what's going on with the Alien Cartel sequel? Is that still coming? Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's what happened, right? Because I was doing the editing for the sequel, and I was kind of kind of bogged down into it. I said, oh, let me just write the short story, you know, a couple of words, you know, a couple of pages, and keep going. But then I got into the whole story of Phobia and Dreams, so now I'm going to go back to Tides of Retribution, which is the sequel to uh, Alien Cartel. And actually, it, it, I think it's going to be a little bit better because the way I wrote Phobia and Dreams was more... Because what it was, was a contest, I think it was a Writer's Digest, a Reader's Digest. So my audience was going to be, you know, just the regular kind of people. You know what I'm saying? Not like really hardcore sci-fi readers. So I kind of made it a little bit easier to read, you know. And uh, so I'm going to bring some of that back into when I go back into Times of Retribution. Uh, so it just kind of flows easier, you know. So it's a real quick story, you know, easy to read. And I, I think people are really going to like it. Are you going to continue on with this one into another series as well? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know, because uh, Adam Laurie, because I did an interview with him on his friends to know, and he kind of brought that up. He was saying, dude, you create a whole universe before being dreams, and you got to, like, continue. Yeah. Yeah, so I might do that. But, did he, did but, he read it too, then? Yeah, yeah, he read it, and I sent him, I sent him one of my PDF copies, you know, that had all kinds of errors and stuff in it, but he read through it, and I, he really liked it. So, And so far, like, I sold like about 40 copies of Phobia and Dreams, and it's only been out a little bit over a week. And that's more than twice what I did with Alien Cartel over the last two years. How many copies? About 40 copies. Nice. Ooh, that a boy. Yeah. I mean, that's not a lot. You know, people start out, you know, well-known authors, you know, have thousands of copies, you know, in the first thing. But, but for me, the, the, the difference is, um, for one thing, is that I've been like on TV, you know, like with the uh, NASA's Unexplained Files, where they feature my Phobos monolith. And then also I got some cred, right, because uh, my paper that I wrote on the stains of Mars was validated with NASA's announcement. So I kind of like, like, you know, bring up kind of a quasi, you know, amateur scientist guy, you know, but I'm not making up shit. You know, I'm not like, like trying to explain, trying to convince people that Earth is flat, you know. You're, not, like you're, you're not an autistic genius from Puerto Rico, are you? <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> Some of that is true. Some of that is true. I don't know which part, right? <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you there. No, that's fine. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and it's kind of like, uh, you know, I think that the Grimericans, the people that listen to our show, you know, the show, uh, would like the ideas that I present and how I present them. So, uh, so I'm really looking forward. I want to ask, you know, our listeners to support me and, and, you know, take a look at it and read it. And if you like it, write a good review for me. And, uh, you know, let's just keep this going forward. Yeah, man. I, I liked it. Carl will put the link in the show notes. Right? I will for sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm looking forward to more. I'm, I'm a little bit disappointed that I didn't get to to uh, read the Tides of Retribution, but I guess I'll... When do you think it'll, that'll be out? Well, yeah, that's, I'm working on that. should be like a couple of months. Because it's oh, already good. done. Yeah. yeah, it's already done. I just had to you know, finish editing. As a matter of fact... A lot of my fans were getting upset with me. They said, dude, what's, what's Tides? You know, I know you're writing this, but you're getting off track. Come on, man. So uh, anyways, so I got Phobia Dreams out of my system, which was like, a little bit like a creative break, like taking a vacation. So now I'm pumped up to finish up uh, Tides. 
And I, I tell you, that's going to be a, an eye opener. And and I, I, yeah. I can buy Phobian Dreams out of Australia. Oh, there we go. $22 Australian, <laughs> which is the same as Canadian, but then $30 shipping. Oh, gosh. Well, Canada has uh, Canada Amazon. You can get it to that. Oh, yeah, I'm on eBay. That's right. Oh, oh eBay, yeah, yeah. yeah go to, go to shipping out of Australia already. Damn. Yeah, just go to Amazon CA, and I uh, already had a few people buy from there. Uh, What's the price? Eleven dollars. Right mm-hmm. Well, it's seven seven ninety nine US. No, the Kindle price is seven eighty one. Apparently. Hmm. Well, it's five ninety nine US. I don't know what Canadian rate is, but uh, but yeah. So people, you know, I want guys to check it out, and read it, and there's more to come because see, after ties, I have uh, two more. Uh, you know, in that series. It's going to follow that. Oh, I thought there was only three, so it's not now there's four in that series? Well, there's two, and then it's going to be a prequel at the oh, end of it. Oh, okay, nice. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, interestingly enough, the prequel, what it is, is it's set in ancient Rome, AD 79. And I have, you know, my characters in, in Alien Cartel are past life related, right? It goes back and forth. Yeah. So, so the same characters are living through this Roman ancient time, so it's kind of like like just opposing ancient Rome with alien space technology, right? But I think it's, it's kind of like you know you see in that movie like what's that cowboys? Cow- that? Cowboys and aliens, yeah. Yeah, cowboys and aliens, right? So it'd be ancient Romans and aliens. Nice, like Spartacus and aliens. Spartacus and aliens, right? Maximus. Maximus. Yeah, that's good, Maximus man. I'm looking forward to it. I, I'm going to get your when as soon as it comes out on audio. Let me know. How come I can't get a paperback though? Yeah. But I'm not a big Kindle fan. You can buy a paperback. On Amazon? Yeah. All I seen yeah. was Kindle editions. No, paperback's oh, what, what, $11. Send me the yeah. link. Yeah, yeah, you can buy a paperback. <clears throat> and I, I have the audio coming out soon. And Self-narrated? You know, I don't know. I don't know if people can understand. No, I, I, <laughs> honestly, I, I don't think even... I don't think people that even are really good at reading should do self-narrated. I think that there's so many people, really good um, narrators out there. Like their yeah. voices. Yeah, yeah, like, like yeah. the guy that did Alien Cartel. don't know, Mr. Baggins. No, you don't have to do the full voice. It's just the, just the inflection of it. Like, it doesn't have to be like a, you know, a screenplay type thing. When I speak in a screenplay, any uh, screenplays on the horizon? Well, you know, that's what I'm hoping for. Because I tell you, these, any of my books will make an excellent movie. As long as they don't mess with it, you know, and trying to make it all Hollywoody, if they would just leave it as it is, because these are original ideas, original stories. You know, you don't, when you read Alien Cartel, Phobian Dreams, Times of Retribution, any of my books, these are totally original stories with original characters. And, uh, and it would make an excellent movie. As a matter of fact, people that read it would say that to me. It's like, wow, it's like a reading. It's like I feel like it could be a movie. Definitely. Oh yeah, you visualize like some books. You can just visualize the whole scene happening on, right? That's what it's like for me. It is. That's why. That's why Adam said like you create. You're creating another world, right? So just keep keep going with the alien cartel and the phobian dreams, and they can merge. Like eventually, like phobian dreams becomes like a futuristic uh, timeline of alien cartel. It's like Hmm. Star Wars. Yeah. 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 Totally. But you know, aside from just being a you know science fiction story, there's also you know, a tale, you know, a moral tale to it, you know. So there's, you know, so look for that, you know, because the, the, the thing about it is to make you think, 
you know, kind of think outside the box. You know, it's like, what ifs? You know, and any good science fiction story, I think, does that. And I think mine does, you know, because people would, would, like, ponder some of the things that I bring out and uh, just kind of bring you outside the box a little bit, you know, outside of your comfort zone. And, uh, yeah. That's good, man. What else you got going on uh, these days after that? After that, Are you doing anything else? Well, you know, uh, the next thing I'm working on, because I'm still working on this magnetic slip drive. Right. And it's kind of it's kind of funny because, you know, it's not a space drive like I have in the, in the book, but it's a mechanical uh, power amplifier using magnets. And that's something I'm working on right now. You know, you totally. call it a magnetic slip drive. Yeah. OK. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's not panned yet, so I don't want to get too much into it. But uh, if it works, it's going to be a, a game changer. Can you explain a little bit about how it would work? Is it like well, electromagnetic stuff or? No, because actually it came out of my attempt to win the, the human power helicopter contest, right? Because the, the thing was, is, is helicopters take a lot of power and human power is only like three quarters of a horsepower. So the whole uh, problem was how to amplify or how to uh, efficiently use your, your power output to do something that power something that, you know, needs more. So there's all these different tricks people did, but I came upon this idea of using these uh, magnetics, magnets to, as a gear, right? Yeah, so in yeah. other words, they're the non-contact gears. And I developed a system to do that. And so what it does, it eliminates friction. And when you can eliminate friction, you can actually do things with a gear system that's not possible. With a, norm, that, with a normal mechanical gear. Well, it's a mechanical gear, but there's no actual physical contact, right? Hmm. So what it is, is you know, like, like magnets, like when you put like poles together, they, they repel each other. So it's using that mechanism, that, that you know, to, to actually move something in a gear system without physical contact. So, and I've actually prototyped this, and I've, so far it's been very successful. And right now what I'm doing is I'm, I'm actually... Uh, have my own homemade foundry, aluminum, um, to make this specific kind of a, a, a part, right? That it's not part, you can't, you can't like machine it, right? You can't like, you know, you can't build, you have to like, like mold this thing, like that's one piece, it's very intricate. So I'm working on that right now. And once I get that part done, which is like, I'll call this a magnetic hub. Once that's done, then I can prove, totally prove that this thing is gonna work. And, and when that happens, it's going to be a big thing. Wow. We better keep us in the loop. Oh, yeah, totally. That might be worth a trip to Portland. <laughs> yes, definitely. Hey, speaking of trips, uh, I don't know if you guys you know, are interested in doing this alien con that's coming up. I think I sent you an email about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm interested, of course. I don't think I can swing it. But what? Yeah. explain it again. Well, it's, it's, it's just like... You know, or like all these alien uh, movies, uh, um, uh, you know, like Asian Aliens is part of it. You know, the sponsor in it is those kind of guys. You know, that kind of, uh, of uh, but it's, it's the actors and the producers and the show. You know, it's this huge venue where they're having this thing going on. It's called Alien Con. Where is it? In Santa Clara, uh, California, late October. And so they have tables available. You know, so I was, gonna, I was thinking of going on there so I can, you know, hawk my books. 
But there's room there if you guys want to like do a live show from this venue. Or just share a table with you, maybe. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Okay, well, we'll think about it. Yeah, yeah, check it out. When in October? Uh, towards the end of October. I forget the exact date. I think it's the last week in October. Hmm. Yeah, it might uh, not be. It might not, I don't think we'll be able to go down personally, but um, we, we, we may be able to. Uh, yeah, we may be able to, like, help support you doing what you're doing down there with yeah, some that, America stuff and maybe have you like do a couple shows from down there or something like that. Or, oh yeah. yeah. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah. I, I could like record a show for you guys, do some interviews or whatever. Oh yeah. It's on Cassandra's birthday. Yeah. Oh, all right. Yeah. It's kind of bad timing. All right. Yep. Oh, <laughs> I know. Right. Yeah. So that's what I got happening right now. Uh, you know, a, we got a whack of listeners in California though. We could probably rustle some up by October. Wonder yeah. how far that? Do you know how far it is from San Diego? Uh it's it's, it's pretty far north of San Diego. San Diego is south of L.A., so Santa Clara's up, you know, north of that. So, but yeah, but this might be an opportunity to get more California Great Americans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you guys can all go meet up. Yeah, yeah. So you know, if I, I don't get think that, we've happening. successfully had anyone meet up anywhere yet. It's seven hours. Wow. Oh, really? You checked that? Yeah, seven-hour drive. Yeah, from here for from San Diego. Yeah, Santa Clara is just south of Sacramento. So it's not too. How so is that by Silicon Valley? Uh, no, and Silicon Valley is even uh, further north. Yeah. Further north, I think. Yeah, it's pretty far north of there. Yeah, it's kind of in the middle, in between. Huh. But uh, anyway, it's an interesting venue. But it, it's kind of like deals with the topics that we talk about, you know. So that I think it might be interesting. Right on, buddy. Yeah. So, Darren, let's talk about supporting the show then while we're on that. Support the show. <laughs> yeah, support the show. America.ca slash support. Yeah. Um, if, if people notice in their podcast players, uh, there's different uh, art every week. We want to uh, encourage, encourage people to send their artwork in to nap at com, And even there's a bunch of old episodes, too, that you could do the artwork for and get it out on Instagram or on our uh, in our links. And that'll be the backdrop for the pod players when people play it. And, of course, check out. There's a bunch of different options there. As you know, we are ad-free, sponsor-free, affiliate-free, bullshit-free, not gram-free. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's a bunch of different ways there. Anything from a buck a month, which is about three cents a day, to uh, 30 bucks a month or about a buck a day to support... Uh, the show or you can just do one-time donations do a one-time donation buy a t-shirt you can also support the show by signing people up for the newsletter america.ca slash news you can uh, spam gram forward them your spam send send jingles in send jingles stories gram, send them your synchros what else you like uh, check out the show notes for all the links and the whole back catalog is free all right, that's it. Review this motherfucker. Yeah. Five stars. Do that now. All the links are in the show notes, so you can probably just like... Just go right doing, now while you're listening. You can any, any one of these things within a couple of clicks. Yeah. We put in hours every week for you motherfuckers. Just swipe, swipe, click, done. Yeah, and enjoy this great chat with James Brown about ancient electric Egyptians. Did you, are you not doing your... Uh, oh. 
Huh, I almost forgot. <clears throat> this will be like right out of Ephraim's, one of Ephraim's books. Ooh. Do you have right. a phobia and dreams on? This is the UFO <laughs> quote. It was made and flown by intelligent beings. That was Major Shiro Kabuta of Japan's Air Self-Defense Force. What, do you have like an emergency file there where you just click and you got a couple of one-liners when you get No, no, it's still go- I'm still going here. Kabuta and his pilot, Lieutenant Colonel Toshio Nakamura, Toshio were scrambled in an F-4EJ to intercept what they were told was a Soviet bomber. Once airborne, they were informed that their target was actually a UFO, which had been sighted by ground and was being tracked on radar. When they closed upon the red disc-like UFO, it began to maneuver around the plane, causing Nakamura to take evasive action. Makanera. Hmm. You didn't insinuate it properly, or it's racist. You're a racist. You're the racist for doing it in that accent. Come what? on. <laughs> Jeez. Ephraim, who's racist? No, hey, nobody is. <laughs> good, good answer. Good answer. Oh, yeah, so uh, the skydive, do we already say the videos are on YouTube? Oh, we did. Did, did we? I think we did, yeah. Skydive on YouTube, Grams yeah. Jump and My Jump. Look for Grams flapping neck. <laughs> Cheek. 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 Well, if you would have tried looking around, your cheek would have started flapping. Did you see my, how, 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 how far my shorts hiked up on the thing? And I, almost right up into my tidy whities Yeah. But uh, what else? Is that it? That's it, buddy. Nothing else? No. Nope. All right, guys. Enjoy this chat with James Ernest Brown. We'll leave you electrified. And, uh, yeah. Thanks, Ephraim. All right. Hey, thanks for having me on. So tonight we have James Ernest Brown with us, and he's the author of Electric Ancient Egyptians, Penetrating the Atom with Electrified Sperm. You guys have probably, whoever's listened to the last episode that would have just come out before this with Dr. Carmen Bolter, she talked quite a bit about James's work as well. And I, I heard her, uh, or I saw her at a lecture, and, and his work was up on up on the board there. It's really interesting stuff. James has been studying ancient Egypt for decades. He's kind of got a radical reinterpretation of the Egyptian art and symbolism. And his book is fascinating. It's full of glossy pictures and stuff. And it's really kind of an an eye-opener, or was for me anyway. So I'm looking forward to chatting about this with you. James, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, Glad to be here. Yeah, like I mentioned, uh, it's one of those books that's kind of... I don't know, man. It, it started, got me thinking, that's for sure. 
after all this stuff, you know, we've been, we've been doing, we did quite a few shows on Egypt and I've been there myself. And then just seeing this real fresh approach about the hieroglyphs and, and the possibilities of what was going on back then. It was, uh, it was great. So congratulations on the, the good book. Yeah. I was fairly excited. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you. You know, the the traditional uh, explanations did, does not make sense. And so uh, that's why I ventured into a whole new approach. Um, uh, and it, it made sense to me. And that's why I pursued it so diligently over these past 30 or 40 years. Right on. I mean, I think it's worth going back into your into your past a little bit and, and how you came came to this path of of research into Egypt, if you don't mind. Not at all. Would, would you like me to uh, explain how I got started? Yeah, could you? Sure, sure. Well, uh, I've, been, I've been to Egypt uh, since 1978. I originally uh, uh, put together a study group. Uh, I had some kind of unusual experiences uh, about pyramids, and I thought it would be important to go there and study hmm. firsthand. And, and I put a study group together, and I took two professional photographers, and at the first trip we, uh, 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 we photographed over 4,000 images. And what was uh, confusing to me was the, the, the books that were written about uh, the pyramids and about Egypt. Uh, when you go there and you actually do your own discovery, you find that there's some inconsistencies. Uh -huh. so, so that has been uh, a, a part of, I think, the dilemma, just uh, some, some confusion. The, uh, 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 subsequently, uh, primarily I was mostly interested in the, in the Cheops Pyramid, the Great Pyramid on the Giza Plateau. And that was my um, um, uh, most extensive uh, research, probably for a period of about 15 years. Wow. And I've been to Egypt three times, and each time I collected probably three or 4,000 photographs. <laughs> the idea was to uh, get as much information, since my time was limited there, uh, so that I could study them when I got back to the United States, uh, which I did. And what I did is I created these, uh, which I call a very large book. I got these uh, foam board pieces that were uh, 40 inches by 60 inches, and I created what would look like was a gigantic book. And I started pasting images together. <clears throat> um, um, I created categories, and I found inconsistencies that just didn't make a lot of sense to me. And when I started putting these images together, I noticed that, you know, similarities uh, from one extreme uh, uh, of the spectrum to the other as far as artifacts uh, <clears throat> and drawings, uh, reliefs, uh, just and even the vessels that they use. And what happened after getting all of these uh, pictures and images up on these boards, I came to a whole different conclusion that this society has never really been examined carefully. You know, we tend to stick with the romantic idea of Egypt and that the pyramids were tombs, even though there is no physical evidence to indicate they were tombs. But we have totally misjudged and misinterpreted, I believe, this race of people. Hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. Did you, I, I went to Egypt, I spent about a month there in 1990 and I, I went into the Great Pyramid and and I went up to the, the chamber there and I wish I wish I would have had a little bit more reverence for that experience. I, I wish I would have probably taken my time and taken a little bit more seriously. Did, did you ever, did you spend any time in there? Did you have any experiences at all? Uh, yes, I did. I've been in there uh, on four or five occasions. And uh, once for two hours, we had a uh, tremendous experience where we were able to stay in there for two hours at one time nice. uh, and took uh, lots of pictures. And there is uh, all kinds of experiences people uh, 
uh, experience. I had one personal experience when I laid in the sarcophagus mm -hmm. inside the King's chamber. Mm -hmm. uh, the, one of the photographers was running a 16 millimeter camera. And this was back in the days before computers mm -hmm. uh, and, and video equipment. But the buzz inside, I could hear that running. And while I was laying there, a, like a whirlpool, almost like a spiral galaxy, a purple whirlpool started swirling over my head. And it felt like it was drawing me into it, like it was pulling me out of my body. And I realized, oh, my gosh, I got all these people here. And I just jumped up uh, and stopped it, immediately stopped. But that was always been a haunting experience for me. I think of that quite often uh, because I am aware of some of the initiations and some of the history of that as uh, possibilities inside of the King's Chamber. Wow. Yeah, we've talked about that being like a an out-of-body experience sort of uh, machine in a way, that, that whole chamber. So was there anything going on in there besides, like, was there was anybody playing sounds or was it was it just like the the power of you, no. being, you being in there? No, it was only the... Well, it was, the, you know, the acoustics in there are incredible and the uh -huh. vibrational frequency. I think what happens is that... Uh, uh, any vibration will tend to magnify and possibly go into resonant overtone if it's continued for a period of time. One of the things we did at that trip is we took some sound tests uh -huh. and we uh, recorded, we, we would slap the uh, sarcophagus with our hand, really whack it, and the uh, we had a recording uh, device and we recorded the sound when later when we got back to the United States uh, and I had a little laboratory a little experimental place uh, uh, in my office so we took that sound off the recorder and we ran it through an oscilloscope and it made the eye of Horus it vibrated at 440 concert a the uh, vibrational frequency but it actually through an oscilloscope the shape of the sound was like the eye of Horus. it it balanced in the center of the scope and it just rocked back and forth very slowly i thought that was quite interesting wow that's really interesting so what when did you start to to think about this whole electric uh, egyptian part or or let's say let's say when did you start thinking that uh you know, you did mention that things weren't as they seem, right? Like, you know, we have this romantic version of of Egypt, but I love the way you've put together some of these possibilities, looking at the hieroglyphs in other ways. So when did you start coming going down that path of like, wow, they might be using sort of some types of uh, static or other electricity and, and different energies? Well, the, the main uh, thing was there was just total confusion in my mind about trying to understand hieroglyphics. And I did attempt to learn them. I uh, purchased as many books as I could about it, but it was it made no sense. It just made no sense to me. I uh, uh, would read what other authors, uh, their interpretations, and again, there was such confusion. So I decided to take on a different approach. And the, uh, the approach was to interpret the, the drawings as literal, literally as possible. I started studying these images and drawings, and I saw in the background all these different little devices and apparatuses and things that are never talked about. And after, you know, and, and here again, common sense had to come into play. We see the Eye of Horus all over Egypt. It's on every building. It's, in fact, uh, throughout uh, all ancient civilizations, we see this giant eye. So to me, I took it literally. Maybe the eyes are the real tools of to which to interpret the, this ancient text, this ancient uh, uh, reliefs and drawings that they left. So I started uh, looking. In fact, in my research, I found that uh, uh, 
uh, companies nowadays are using this technique of using only pictures to explain things. Uh, it, it made common sense to me that one picture speaks a thousand words. And when you study these images, they're, they're, they need no translation. There is a, uh, a big international cabinet company, IKEA Cabinet, that ships to 37 countries around the world. And in fact, I had a personal experience assembling one of their cabinets and I found no instructions. What I found <laughs> was a picture book of showing you how to do it. Not one word. But they distribute to 37 countries around the world. And I think this is amazing. We see uh, images uh, of a, a school bus stop with children getting off. We immediately know danger, slow down. If we're driving in the country, we see uh, uh, a deer uh, and we know to slow down. There could be deer in the neighborhood. So we are using that technology today. So what... what um... So what what were some of the things that you found uh, what in was the, the higher first books? thing? Yeah, like cuz there's a, there's some really interesting examples that I want to bring up if if you don't mention it right okay. off the bat cuz there's some okay. that you know that just ridiculously ridiculous interpretations from the traditional uh you know mainstream view of what it means and then you've sort of got really some different uh you know different possibilities here. Yes. Uh, one of the things that just it would, my jaw dropped when I saw, which is the front cover of the book. And it's actually a photo I took in the temple of Luxor in Egypt. Mm -hmm. And it represents the high point of an annual festival, the opet portraying the god men and the pharaoh justifying their right to rule another year. And when I looked up and I saw, and you see the cover of the book, that here's the god men ejaculating into a container and being collected by another priest, I thought, my gosh, what's going on? I was familiar with what is called the creation myth about mm -hmm. ancient Egypt, you know, how things started in the beginning, and it's the craziest stuff you ever heard. If you can believe the interpretations, some of the pharaohs would take their sperm and spread it on lettuce and trick the other pharaohs into eating it. I mean, this when you interpret these, one of the uh, they masturbated their children into existence. How can that be? Well, that haunted me. And when I saw that image in the Luxor temple, I thought, holy smoly, I got to look at this a whole different way because there's something major going on here that has just been put on the back burner. Is that a Baghdad battery it's hooked up to? A bat well, you know, they had other forms of, of making electricity. I know they had, and if you read the whole book, you know, there's a process, you know, that you can actually, you know, the electro ejaculation I talk about, that they have the ability to totally empty their scrotum at will. It takes 20 volts of electricity. And yes, the Baghdad battery could create that amount of electricity when hooked in series, when you do a combination. And they also had other electrical devices that we talk about in the book. Yeah, like so. Can you can you talk about some of those? I mean, I don't want to give away everything in your book either, well, sure. but but I mean, it's really it really gets fascinating because they've got pictures of stuff like there's, uh, you know, the thing that that the traditional books say is a hand mirror, like because it looks yes. like it's in the shape of a hand mirror. But I mean, you've got uh, different ter interpretation of that. It's actually a capacitor, I, I believe. You know, one of the things that happens and I think is add to the confusion of the uh, ancient Egyptian history is that, you know, 
in in uh, in archaeology, when you are on a site and you discover something, well, it's the distinct honor of the person who discovered it is to name it. Mm-hmm. And what we tend to do in our modern society, that's what we associate with. So if you looked at that and you think, gosh, that looks like a mirror. So they label it as a mirror and that's the way it's cataloged. Well, in reality, uh, it's, I believe, well, it, and not I believe that it's been physically proven. It is a capacitor. It's used for collecting uh, static electricity or larger uh, charges and, and capturing it and being able to transport it and discharge it all at one time in another area. Uh, uh, that was the main function. In fact, there is a, uh, a, a company, Edmund Scientific, where I actually purchased a device that is exactly the same way. It's pictured in the book. It's called, they call it a proof plane, but it's actually used, it was designed to remove a, a buildup of static electricity when working on sophisticated electronic equipment. Mm-hmm. So you, what you do is you take this, it has a, a plastic handle on the one that you buy with a little metal disc attached to it. Now these are almost identical to the Egyptian so-called hand mirrors because they were all, uh, uh, the metal discs, uh, uh, they had organic handles. They were wood, bone, or ivory handles, uh, and they were interchangeable. They were removable. And I thought that was very interesting. Why would they do that? And then when I found out that they were uh, made of organic substances, it took on a whole new meaning for me. So I started looking in other directions that maybe it was really a, uh, a scientific instrument, which uh, you can purchase today. Hmm. So let's continue along that vein then and talk about some of the other, other stuff, because you know, you, you've shown other things as well that the way, the way they even, well, I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you get into it. I don't want to, I don't want to okay. speak for you, but there's a whole bunch of other things that sort of fit along with that capacitor, right? Absolutely. Well, let's take cats for entrance. And uh, uh, for instance, they actually generate negative static electricity. You know, the Egyptians had cats. They were sacred to them. They actually had a, a cat God. Uh, the, um, uh, by stroking a cat, you can generate an electrical charge that can be transferred to one of these discs. Uh, that was another uh, way. The human hands generates the most positive static electricity on the planet. By rubbing your hands together, you actually create an electrical charge. They can be transferred to one of these discs. Now, what I noticed uh, that uh, that Tutankhamun's chair, you know, here's this beautiful gold-covered chair. I saw it in the Cairo Museum, and I was just uh, uh, infatuated by it. I kept looking at it and looking at it, and, and I was just uh, admiring the construction, and I noticed the whole chair was covered with gold, a heavy, heavy gold foil, but on the bottom where it sits on the ground, it was wood. There were wood uh, uh, little uh, uh, legs that it sat on. And I thought, well, that's strange. Why wouldn't they have made the whole thing gold? You know, there was no shortage of gold for the Egyptians. That kind of didn't make sense to me. And then I started examining the chair and I look in the back of the chair and I see the engraving of what I believe is what the chair is used for. The um, um, the Pharaoh is sitting in the chair, his feet are off the ground, which means he is not grounded. Mm-hmm. And his wife is stroking him. Now the interpretation is that she is feeding him. I don't believe that is, is what is happening. It appears his her hand is nowhere near his mouth. 
uh, her hand is on his shoulder and it looks like she's rubbing him and she has something black in her other hand. So then I got to thinking, my gosh, if you were sitting in that chair and somebody were stroking you, you would actually build up an electrical charge. That electrical charge could then be transferred to one of these so-called hand mirrors. And then that electrical charge became portable and can be taken anywhere until you ground it out, till you touch something with it. And you will actually see electricity jump from that little round disc to whatever you want to touch. I kind of equate it to what we would call a modern day Bic lighter, you know, that you wanted to ignite something because I think they were an electric society. Mm -hmm. Then you would, you, you would need this, uh, uh, to set off that reaction. Now, th those are a couple of things. They also had larger size batteries that are apparent and involved in some of these uh, uh, drawings and procedures. Uh, they had them in, in, from the tiny uh, Baghdad battery, which is about the size of a, of a Coca-Cola can, uh, to uh, larger ones that are size, you know, probably five gallons and up. I found the components. I found everything that it would take to uh, make them work. They um, uh, also had what I call capacitors. They had something very similar to what we would equate to the Ark of the Covenant. And it actually uh, is made uh, um, of uh, material that would actually be major conductors. It's, you know, covered with gold. Uh, it's basically made of wood covered with gold foil. It's lined with stucco, tar, gold leaf, silver, quartz, and obsidian. And these layers inside actually will create a, uh, an electrical charge. And I think some of the stories we've heard you know, about in the Bible and stuff, you know, could have a lot of credibility. If this thing got highly charged and a capacitor, what is unique about them is they release all the energy at one time in one big wallop. Whereas a battery, the energy trickles out, you know, uh, in a slow amount and it lasts a longer period of time. But uh, they they had these. They they in my opinion they had these uh, these items. And it sure looks like it in the hieroglyphs as well. Like you see their hand placements a lot, and all these hand mirrors, and their and the guy sitting, um, you know, uh, not grounded, like above above the floor when his gold and his gold. I mean, it, it really is prevalent all over what you, what you're talking about. It's very interesting. So, go ahead. Well, those are the things that I think really need to be examined to really look at these uh, in such a way. You know, again, trying to explain something uh, in a language, uh, uh, you know, over uh, the many thousands of years, you know how difficult it is uh, today, you know, to explain one's concept through translations to another. That's why, to me, the eyes or seeing these pictures and literally interpreting what is being done seemed much more logical to me. And so that was the path that I took through the whole book was to examine each photo and look at alternative uh, 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 ideas as to what they were doing. Yeah, yeah. So can you explain to people that haven't heard of the Baghdad battery or so that sure. so there's, there's the different types of batteries you're talking about. Um, can you just explain a little bit more about how that would work? Sure. The uh, Baghdad battery is a little terracotta uh, vase and uh, uh, it, the name came from, it was found uh, near uh, uh, Baghdad, Iraq, and so it coined the name. Uh, there are many examples of these, and, and what it, uh, it really consists of, it's such a real simple device, uh, it just needs a little iron rod and a little uh, copper core. And they used, in those days, they had things like grape juice or lemon juice, you know, acidic 
uh, things, even seawater was the electrolyte. And what you did is they, the little uh, uh, container, the terracotta vase was filled with the, um, uh, uh, the electrolyte and then the little copper core was in, inserted and they actually found these uh, things with an iron rod. And the interaction, the chemical reaction between the iron core and the um, uh, copper, uh, uh, the, the iron rod in the copper core and the electrolyte, actually electricity started flowing. Now, Mythbusters did a, uh, an episode on them about five or six years ago, uh, and they actually tested it. They replicated it to see what, if, what they're talking about, you know, if it was possible. And they established the fact that it did work. It, it, it uh, uh, created an electrical flow, but it was tiny. It was like a volt. So they were a little disappointed. So what they did is they regrouped and started hooking these up in series. And they found that they could get, you know, they could get up to 20 uh, volts of electricity by uh, just hooking these, these up in series, you know, one to the other. And in fact, in, uh, if you look at image uh, 140 in the book, there was a, a, um, um, an ancient little thing that they're interpreting it as something that a child would have used. But it's actually, uh, it looks like a nine-celled, a Baghdad battery. There are nine of them to put together. They would all link together in series, and this would create probably sufficient amount of electricity to create up to like 20 volts of electricity. Hmm. Do you think that this electricity was used mainly for uh, like personal use? Let's say uh, con like sort of consciousness uh, changing type stuff, or, or was it more of like a for uh, light lighting and stuff like that? Well, I don't know that. I think it, it mostly, I, you know, calling them an electric society, I believe that they use forms of electricity, forms of energy uh, in their daily lives and, you know, throughout the country. I think in ancient times we used forms of electricity that were non-polluting. You know, the this uh, carbon-based fuel that we're using, is really uh, messing things up for us. And I believe that the ancients had a way of using these natural forms of energy. Yeah. Now, they could create, uh, and mostly, uh, you know, uh, uh, getting back to the original uh, uh, name of the book, Penetrating the Atom with the Electrified Sperm, one of the things that I believe that they were able to do is during, and they used electricity to accomplish this, that um, the pharaoh in, in a certain uh, ceremonial chamber, which we will talk about uh, in a little bit, uh, was laid out in there and he was suspended literally the way he was positioned in there. And I believe they used the static electricity to manipulate through the pharaoh's body and mm. possibly other, other people. But this is how they were able to amp up uh, the sperm. The sperm is actually a little electrical charge. Uh, recently, uh, Teresa Woodruff, PhD from Northwestern University of Chicago, measured the electricity, actually measured the voltage in human sperm. They're looking at it in a different direction in this research. They're not looking at it in, in the direction I'm headed with. It's about, uh, it's about um, um, uh, not having babies. You know, they, they're they found that electricity in the sperm, when the tail wags, it actually generates electricity. So they're trying to stop the reproduction. It's a male. Uh, um, so it's like a contraception, male med like medication. Male, male contraception, like a male contraception. Yeah. Yes. And what they're looking at it from that standpoint is that uh, by curbing the electricity in it, that it will die and it will no longer be effective. So but there is a, a, go ahead. 
No, no, keep going, keep going. Well, so the uh, uh, the thing is, there is major research now in that area. Uh, there's some uh, Russian uh, folks working on it, uh, but most of the breakthroughs have been the last couple of years. And the reasons why they're experimenting with it is is not in the same direction mine is. I believe the atomic structure uh, is susceptible at a certain time. And this has to do with other things we'll talk about in the book about timing. Celestial events are involved in this. And I believe that under the right conditions at the right time that the Pharaoh had this unique ability to create this electrical charge uh, by amping up his sperm uh, to actually manipulate atomic structure. Wow. Wow, let's let's get dig into a little bit about how he does that because you have a lot of examples in the book as well of of um, gold finger finger covers and nipple covers and stuff like that. So is it is it one of those things where the guy would lie? I mean, who knows? I mean, it's interesting how it's the opposite of what we're doing now. We're trying to okay. de-electrify sperm, and then they're like electrifying okay. it, which could have you know done a lot. <laughs> okay. Well, here, here's the thing. They had, these were some other things that were totally misunderstood uh, and misidentified. They're called ceremonial chambers. And you see them in the book. These are these gold-covered chambers. They're covered with gold inside and out. They're made of a, a hardwood superstructure, but covered with this gold. Now, when again, in studying those, you know, the they said that uh, uh, the uh, uh, pharaoh... Uh, just a second. I've I've got to regroup here. Uh, when he was in the electrified state, he went into the uh, um, uh, into the ceremonial chamber. Mm -hmm. Now, the ceremonial chamber is exactly fits the profile of a Faraday cage. Yeah. Now, a Faraday cage. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. Okay. But, but explain well, it. We're in one. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> they're in one. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's just about. Okay, well, a Faraday sure. Yeah, go ahead. Is, is an enclosure formed by conductive material, and it blocks its external static and non-static electrical fields. Channeling electricity through the metal provides constant voltage on all sides. In 1936, or 1836, I'm sorry, Michael Faraday created the first enclosure and observed that the charge resided on the exterior and had no influence on anything else. Hmm. Now, this is uh, pretty key stuff, so that if you're inside this chamber, you're not susceptible to any outside influence. So here's the procedure. They had these special beds. They called them sled beds, mm. and the pharaoh laid down on the sled bed. Now, what is unique about the sled bed is it has wooden legs on it also. So if you're inside this chamber and you're laying on that sled bed, you are not influenced by any electrical charge. You are totally electrically free, so to speak. Now, there were attendants in there that I believe generated an electrical charge, rubbing their hands together. Again, they are not susceptible to any electrical fields that are going on. And now the placement of these uh, gold electrodes, gold is the best surface electrical conductor. And what they had were these unusual objects that were never really explained. They, were, they had these gold nipple covers. They had uh, gold toe covers. They had gold finger covers. They had uh, gold eyelid covers, gold tongue covers. Now, what were these used for? Now, in the, some of the interpretations, uh, there were over 75 procedures that the pharaoh had uh, these uh, items placed on his body. Now, if you want to get uh, electricity to the gonads, 
uh, with these two nipple covers and you generate an electrical charge inside the chamber and you touch only those nipples, that electricity will surge through the body and go directly to the gonads. And that's how I believe they were able to amp up the sperm inside the pharaoh. Now the pharaoh then could actually leave that and actually go about his business and a certain time when he needed to discharge that when timing was correct using the process of electro ejaculation he was able to discharge at will his electrified sperm yeah wow that's fascinating so have you have you guys done i mean you've done experiments yourself with some of the faraday cages and all that i think i remember seeing in your book there yes uh, i have uh, I, I haven't experimented with that yeah, uh, but do you, need, do you need any yeah. volunteers or <laughs> we're looking for volunteers? <laughs> I have ex done some uh, extensive experiments. Uh, the same with the I have a replica of Tutankhamun's chair. Um, there is a wonderful uh, company, Toscano, that makes replicas. Uh, and I was able over the years to purchase some of these. And I've actually done some electrical experiments. The chair is covered with gold foil. It's not real thick like the real chair, so it's not worth a, a lot in that respect. But when you're setting in it, you can actually create an enormous electrical charge. The whole ch chair becomes electrified. You can feel it through through your whole body. Uh, the The... The, the thing of applying, you know, like uh, the gold-covered fingertips. Now, in reflexology, acupuncture, this, these are ancient uh, uh, pr uh, procedures. The pathway to the brain is the fingertips, as an example, or the tips of the toes. So with gold covers over those toes, if you touch those, again, with electrical charge, it will immediately go to the brain. I think they were onto some way of healing and actually manipulating electricity through the body. I think that was probably the main purpose. But one of the, uh, the benefits of electrifying the pharaoh's uh, sperm and gave him a unique power because I do not believe the multitudes knew about this right right huh so that was part of their their inner inner sort of inner secrets really of what was going on yeah huh do you think that that had anything to do with like or or some form of this had anything to do with the the megalithic building that was going around around the around the world like it's it still amazes me that they were able to put all these um big blocks up and put them together all over the world you know, thousands of years ago. I mean, I know I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't know what the, what the answers are. I don't really think anybody really knows exactly how they were all done. Well, uh, again, this is um, a lot of ideas about it. I do believe that they uh, had unique abilities. I really believe they were able to levitate the stones and cut those. I believe they had laser technology, the ancients. I, at the very end of the book, there is a person I relate to, Edward Leedscallon, uh, who lived in my lifetime. He passed away in 1951. But uh, uh, here's somebody who claimed that he had figured it out and he actually demonstrated it uh, at uh, Homestead, Florida. It's called the Coral Castle, Edward Leedscallon. In fact, you guys did a, uh, a thing with a fellow that talked a little bit about that a while back, I remember. We tuned into one of your programs. My son Casey uh, helped me uh, to, to hear one of your programs. And it was about uh, Leedscallon. Yeah, now, he yeah. claimed... He claimed that he had figured it out and had the knowledge, but, you know, he did not share it with anybody. And, in fact, I, uh, um, uh, my wife, uh, Deborah, uh, we spent two weeks down there interviewing people 
who knew him and wow. to find out any little idiosyncrasies or things. And he did not share his information with anyone. So uh, what I did is I made all these comparisons of what the Egyptians did and things that he had. And there's a good, you know, 10 or 15 examples that he knew some of the things that they knew. Now, in analyzing, why wouldn't he share this information with anyone? Well, this was back in the uh, in the 20s and 30s, and I don't think anyone would have been uh, uh, ready for this information. That might have been one of the reasons why he was not able to explain, because he would have been tarred and feathered, you know, at that time in history. With people weren't prepared for that. But it amazes me that he had this technology and. He he demonstrated, he built this, what is called the coral castle. He first, he cut 10 foot square sections, two foot thick out of the coral there and, and created a wall around his entire property. And then he went on to build a two-story structure, elevating stones that weighed over 18, 20 tons, over 35 feet in the air, single-handedly. And nobody ever saw him do this. And we talked to people who knew him well that he actually lived with for short periods of time. I, so I, I remember hearing some stories of like truck drivers and stuff that when he had to, cause he had to move it at one time. Right. Do you want to hear, you want to hear a story about that? Yeah. When absolutely. I, when, okay. When I happened to be there uh, uh, and again, I actually tried to purchase the place, you know, it was, I was so fascinated. <laughs> I really did. I, I tendered a, a deposit and, but the family didn't want to part with it at that time. But while they were there, do you remember Leonard Nimoy in search of the Henry's? Uh, uh, 30-minute documentaries. Yeah. Well, I was asked to be to be on that, and uh, because they were interested in some of my theories, I talked to the Alan Lansbury was the producer to talk to some of the people on site, and they thought, "Wow, you got some great ideas." Would I mind being interviewed? And I said, "No, not at all. I'd love to." And so I came back about three weeks later, my scheduled time, and I was supposed to be there at a certain time for the interview. But what I did is I got there two or three days early, and I wanted to see what they were doing. It was I was. Curious. Well, I had firsthand information. I personally talked to a man that moved that big stone from one location to another. And here's what, what actually happened. He said that, ask him to, when he was ready to move this, this one met, um, a stone that was 18 tons, big, it told him to bring his hay wagon over and help him move it. So what he did, he said he brought it over, lead scowling, asked him to come back tomorrow. The next day so he left and he came back the next morning and the stone was on the truck <laughs> it was laying on the truck or on the on the uh, hay wagon so he hooks his tractor to it and he tows it over a couple miles to the new location so lead scowling asked him to come back the next uh, day which he did and it was off the the wagon and had been installed it was an upright position where it needed to go and uh, so he left well, that was the story that the guy who was involved in it told me. So when I was there witnessing what In Search Of was doing, they, uh, when they uh, got to that, they had hired an actor to play Leeds Gallon. And what they did is when the guy brought the, the, flat, or the uh, hay wagon over with his tractor, uh, he's, the, what they portrayed, what they filmed, was Leeds Gallon asked him to turn around and Instantly, the stone was on the back of the hay wagon. <laughs> when, he, when he asked him that he towed it to the next site, Lee, he said, Lee Scallon asked him to turn around, and it was off. That is not what happened. 
Uh, I refused to be part of the uh, of the production because it was perpetuating a lie. They were making him to look like some magical freak, and that wasn't what happened at all. Uh, but that's a true story. This was uh, 1980. Back a few years. What's your What's your sense? I mean, and you can speculate here. What's your sense on how he actually did that? I mean, we had a guy on as well after the fact. So we had uh, the guy that wrote the book. I'm trying to remember the book's name now. Something about uh, his girlfriend. Um, and then, then we had a guy on later who was doing all these experiments in his backyard with the actual cutting of the coral and all that. Hey, Darren, he had all these perpetual machines was, uh... going on. But how do you think he, he actually moved these these things around? Well, I think he was able to create zero gravity. In fact, there's a couple of, of uh, stories, mm-hmm. uh, there, and they weren't given any credit because they were children. And there were two over a period of about three or four years, and a couple, there were two little girls that were riding their bikes, and they propped him up against the wall, and they looked over the wall, and they said they saw him with a stone floating in the air with his hands over it, and he was singing. That's what they explained. And then there was a couple little boys that had a similar experience a couple years later. But they, but again, since they were kids and it was so fantastic, the explanation, nobody gave it any credibility. But I think he was able to create what I call a sphere of influence. If you'll notice in some of the, uh, some of the photographs, he has these three enormous tripods. Mm-hmm. They're giant and they go up, they, they go up there as tall as his 35 foot um, uh, structure, little two story structure. And I believe that what it takes to do this is you create an environment of which you have control over. And I know that, you know, there were certain energy patterns. Uh, 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 he was very particular where he built his site. I know that he uh, he studied it for months before he decided where he was actually going to replace his coral castle. Um, uh, so I think the energy field that exists in there was an important part of it. You know, one of the things that uh, is, is hardly talked about, these telluric currents, you know, there's electrical currents that flow in the earth 24-7. They flow 12 hours one direction, then they will reverse themselves and flow 12 hours in the opposite direction. It's a low frequency electrical current. It's the same electricity that will actually charge earth batteries. That's a whole separate subject, but uh, but it's a, a real phenomena that takes place. And I think uh, Leeds Gallen, as well as Nikola Tesla, uh, as well as the Egyptians, were able to tap into these electrical currents. And it's a source of free energy. Is that the same type of thing as the ley lines that they talk about? Absolutely. You're absolutely right. You know, there, there's a lot of descriptions. You know, the Chinese, ancient Chinese talked about them. They called them dragon lines. But there are a lot of different uh, modern interpretations. But it's, I believe, the same the same energy. Hmm. Wow. That's well, there's a conjunction in Alberta, girl. Is there? Yeah, we could. Uh, we should go there, yeah. Uh, where the lines <laughs> cross? Yeah. We'll go yep. there with our gold nipple t- nipple tips and uh, <laughs> finger things. And <laughs> I'd be more you interested be- in trying to uh, harness the energy somehow. Well, yeah, that's that we, could, we'll we could be that's- the Alberta energy kings. <laughs> see, that was Nikola Tesla's big thing: was tapping into that energy and pulling it out of the earth and broadcasting it through the ethers and be able to tap into it with a with a small antenna. So but, is there a uh, chance that this was the Egyptians are doing? Like, can I picture a city with like lit up pyramid tops and like, you know, all these obelisks are like lit up on the top, like street lights? 
Uh, no, I don't think we, uh, you know, that was the way that it was done. I think they use crystals for lighting. I think quartz crystals, I think when they're, uh, you know, under pressure, they exude uh, piezoelectricity. Uh, they had all kinds of crystals. Uh, 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 a major crystal society was, was used. And again, when you compress these different elements, you know, a different way of looking at some of these structures is is not so much their shape as to what they can actually do. When you compress granite as an example, and lots of granite used in those structures, when you compress it, it actually, uh, uh, piezoelectricity will flow out of it. Uh, and the different ones, limestone has a different characteristic. It gets piezoelectricity, it only flows in one direction. Whereas granite will do, will, will uh, come out uh, 360 in all directions. But some of the uh, things that I think need to be looked at is what materials were used to construct some of these buildings. And then look at the physical characteristics of those, the, the properties of those elements that were used. Huh. Yeah, we talked about the the pyramids. I can't remember who was with there now, Darren. We talked to them about the the different materials in the pyramid and how that could have affected, or maybe it was just me reading the book. Yeah. Now I'm getting confused, but how it could affect the way electricity flows through it because the you know the the outside was made of a different stone than the inside. And okay. yeah, okay. what do you do um, with the electrified sperm? Well, you well, penetrate the atom. Yeah. Like, could you make? I'm picturing you use the electric sperm to make uh, stronger people lift the stones. Well, you know, the there's a lot of stories about the ancient Egyptians and what they did, and I really believe they were uh, manipulating life forms. You know, there was a, uh, a a remarkable a man by the name of Edgar Casey who actually made a lot of predictions about them that the ancient Egyptians were actually. I and, and again, if they had this knowledge, I believe they were manipulating DNA. I really believe that 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 was certainly possible. Now, just to clarify something, you know, about the pyramids. You know, the uh, the physical shape of the pyramid, uh, the Cheops pyramid, it is uh, when you orient it to the uh, magnetic uh, north and south and you have a 51 degree angle, well, it actually exudes electricity. Now, one of these things you mentioned that the pyramids could actually go, uh, there are times when they actually do. In fact, uh, there's been uh, hundreds, if not thousands of patents issued on little pyramid shaped devices. And basically what I believe they're doing is tapping into this current and focusing it. I have a, uh, a, uh, a little uh, a grid with pyramids uh, with a Curlian uh, photo of it. You can actually see them outlined and you can actually see energy glowing all around them. Wow. So it, to, to get back to the thing that, that might have been a way, a source of light, uh, I am aware of the glowing pyramids, that concept. Huh. Wow, that's fascinating. So Darren, what, what, so let's, let's, when you say penetrate the atom, and do you mean like physical, you know, in the, in the act of, of, of sex, like changing DNA, or do you mean penetrating the atom as in like making some other structure change, yes. physical yeah. structure? This con uh, concept has nothing to do with sex. It is strictly, strictly clinical. I believe that what they were doing, they had these unique things in there. There's many examples in the book referred, they called them offering tables, but they are actually, I believe, transforming tables. Now, how I come up with the idea of the atomic structure is when I started examining some of those photos, and when you look at them in the, in the, uh, uh, in the, in the book, 
you will see that on these so-called offering tables, and I'm going to call them a transforming table, there are stacks of items. Mm -hmm. And on the very bottom, you see these round circles. Now, if you look at atomic structure, you'll see that it's a vibrating mass of circles. We've never been able to photograph the atom still. It's always in motion. Now, again, relating to the eyes, what you see is what you get. The, if they understood what the atoms look like, they actually drew them. When you look at these and you study these, they look like atoms. They're mostly always on the bottom of the stack. And the, the stack consists of a lot of symbolic items. And, there, and as an example, and each one needs to be deciphered what it actually means. You'll find in a lot of them what is referred to as the hind uh, ox leg, uh, 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 the, the actual shape. It's not an ox leg at all. It's the Big Dipper. It's a constellation. So what has to be done is reinterpret all these items on this transforming table. Now, what I found was with these transforming tables, after the, the sperm was collected in a vessel, the same vessel is present above these tables being poured onto this stack of items. And I believe that is the, the catalyst which sets off a chemical reaction for this whole stack of items, and it becomes something else, hmm. transmutation. I really believe that they were actually creating base elements. They were actually intermixing uh, and um, uh, uh, creating what they needed. And that was part of the process. Now, there's another huge aspect to this, and it's called celestial timing. I refer to it as the secret ingredient. Modern science, modern, uh, you know, um, uh, it does not want to consider even the fact that anything beyond our uh, atmosphere has an effect on planet Earth. But I believe, and there's a lot of evidence to indicate that it does. And I believe that at certain times, the atomic structure is more susceptible. In fact, during when the atom jumps, you know, it actually makes a quantum leap. Are you familiar with that? That atoms, when they're in orbit, this very tight orbit spinning at high speed, that they periodically, without without any notice, jump and take on a different orbit within the superstructure of the atom. I, I first saw this on the Cosmos series. I was blown away when I saw the, uh, the hydrogen atom, and, and they call it a quantum leap or a jump. And it's actually a transition uh, uh, and a change from one electron to a quantum state to another within the atom. And the, elect the electron changes orbits in a nanosecond or less. But... You guys, I think this is when it becomes susceptible. When the atom is actually jumping, it breaks out from the shell and creates a new shell. So when does it do it? That's, that's going to be the key is to find out. And I think astronomical events will actually pinpoint those times. And I believe that the, uh, the so-called Senate game that I talk about in the book is actually an astronomical device that can tell you those times. And it has to do with the movement of the uh, 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 the sun or the movement of our planet uh, with uh, shadows from our sun, that these little so-called game pieces actually point to major star constellations, and so, I think that's the timing, you know, of knowing when when uh, we were able to do that. Speaking of timing, the way that kind of lines up, if you're talking about genetic manipulation five or ten thousand years ago do you think there's any chance that this could be where uh tales of nephilim and things like that could come from 
Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, what keep these myths alive is just a tiny bit of truth, you know, repeated over and over. And even though some seem so bizarre, if you really analyze the story and maybe try to look for other meanings, it does, it will take on a new, a new, uh, a whole new meaning for you. And just for people that are, that are listening that, that think this might sound a little crazy, you, there's pictures and higher pictures, I always call the higher ghost pictures, but mm. of all kinds of, of pictures of these guys with, you know, erections and, and pouring their sperm into, into all these devices, like it's, it's prevalent. Yes, that was uh, uh, my, um, in, in uh, 2010, when I visited Egypt, we went to a uh, southern part and we visited all the temples. And what was amazing to me was these very graphic images of these pharaohs with erections that are on all the buildings, on all the columns, wherever you go, you see them. Uh, and, and normally it's the god men who's standing there with an erection. And I mean, um, a gigantic guy, uh, kind of funny side note, you know, the some of the rampaging societies tried to chisel the erections off because I, <laughs> I, I think that they didn't like the looks of it. Uh, but it uh, wasn't very successful, but, uh, but they uh, did manage to damage a lot of the images. But when I was in the Luxor Temple and I was just going through taking pictures and I looked up and I saw that pharaoh ejaculating into that container, I thought, what on earth could be going on here? There has to be major significance. This is one of the most important temples. And here you have this image that's 12 foot tall. And it wasn't the only one. There are other images in the temple uh, and throughout Egypt. Uh, throughout the southern part of Egypt, where all the temples exist, hmm. yeah, that's super, super interesting. It's so. How was this book uh, received from people? Like, did it did it meet your expectations, or did you have any expectations of what people would think about this? Because it is, it is pretty. It's it's really fascinating, but it sure is a different take on it, right? Like, uh, yes. How did how did it go? I mean, obviously, the the mainstream scientific community probably doesn't uh, doesn't like it too much, but in general. Well, you know, you know, it was a real experience for me. You know, I've never really written a book before. Uh, you know, I'm 75 years old. It, it's something I wanted to sum up the, all this information and, and make it so that it could be uh, 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 accepted. And again, I tried to be as clinical as possible about it. But I actually uh, did it through a book, baby, uh, where you self-publish. Uh, and I have been, I haven't sold a lot of books. It hasn't been my intent as yet. I'm doing uh, a few of these radio uh, talk shows and I have that wonderful thing coming up with, uh, uh, Carmen, Dr. Carmen Bolter, where she is uh, going to feature my work in her new uh, upcoming series, The New Atlantis to be released in, in October. Uh, but I, uh, one of the things that was encouraging to me, and it's been a struggle every step of the way, is that when I submitted it for reviews, I got four five-star reviews right off the bat. You know, I, I, I didn't know what to do, and so I initially started uh, uh, getting the book out there to see. But the, uh, uh, the average layperson gets it. Uh, yeah, these yeah. were incredible reviews, and that's, that was my hope was that that uh, that people understand and can see it from my point of view. I did um, um, uh, Richard Hoagland the other night, and boy, he totally got it. It was all over it. It was a wonderful show. 
um, uh, and getting a huge response, uh, getting book orders and also the response from the producers that, uh, that she was getting a tremendous feedback because I guess people have to listen to it. It was uh, one o'clock in the morning, one till three, my interview, but it went off very well. So I am, and I hope uh, that it's going to be a process and I understand that, but if we could get some people to, to understand the concept, and I really believe that is building, uh, uh, I think it's going to grow. And I've got nothing else to do. It's going to be I'm <laughs> spend, the, spend the rest of my life working on it, so <laughs> promoting. And I have other books in the works, uh, similar things. Um, uh, not similar. It's about the uh, um, uh, the pyramid Cheops. It's called Fire in the Middle. It's a it's a, a really a, a great explanation of why they're not tombs. And then a, another one about the. Uh, uh, ancient Egypt's electrical uh, uh, power and gas generating systems. Uh, these huge battery complexes that are powered by telluric currents. That's a whole separate work. But uh, this was the initial one to launch my uh, my new approach to interpreting um, uh, ancient Egypt. Well, it is really visual for people, and and it is easy to to grasp. Like I. It, it hit me pretty hard right away when I was looking at it going, wow, okay, this is making a lot of sense. Like just seeing all the, all the pictures that you show in there and mm -hmm. describe, describing each one and then, and then sort of wrapping it up with your theory and all it is, is very, it's very good. I like, I like it a lot. Well, I appreciate that. And, Thank you. And do you think that the other sites, like <clears throat> as we, as we move on here, our, our, uh, the date of our advanced civilization seems to be going further back and further back. You know, now we have Gobekli Tepe, which was, you know, covered up apparently 6,000 years before the pyramids were there even. And there's the Gunung Padang and, and Easter Island and all these things. Do you think that we're going to start seeing more evidence of your work uh, at different sites? Or do you, do you find it, you think it's more of mainly uh, coming from Egypt? Well, uh, I, I, uh, no, I think that we are going to find this at other sites, and I think you're going to find common denominators to make that connection. You know, the Senate uh, board uh, that is referred to as a game, uh, it's not a game at all. I believe it's a very sophisticated uh, astronomical device, but uh, there were many cultures that had the same game board, uh, which indicates that they had similar knowledge. And I think as we explore a lot of these other sites, we're going to find correlations or connections uh, that will relate to similar technology. I wonder, so hmm, they'd have to have easy access to gold or I suppose you could use iron as well, but people weren't using iron back there. So gold's really your only option for, I mean, they're not even using gold for its value so much as for it's easy to use and it conducts electricity really well. Yeah, it's super functional. Like that's probably why gold was so popular back then. Yes. And very possibly they made their own gold. That is not beyond... Um, Alchemy? Uh, beyond, uh, yes. The alchemical process. See, and that's what the transforming table is all about. You, did you know the ancient name of Egypt and the origin, uh, the origin of our word alchemy uh, is chem, K-H-E-M, which is, um, uh, that's, that was the uh, ori uh, origination of the word alchemy which is the transmutation of base elements. Well, which is exactly I think if we what could, they're talking about right now. Yes, yes. Yeah, there is a, um, um, uh, this um, uh, reaction 
this um, Lenner, L-E-N-E-R, Low Energy Nuclear Reaction, is also known as uh, coal fusion or tabletop fusion that we've uh, talked about. It's been kind of renamed as scientists are now looking at this low energy nuclear reaction. And I think basically that is, ta- is what is taking place during this transmutation process, that the electrified sperm, when applied to this transforming table with all of the L or all of the items which need to be interpreted that they're I think they're different celestial uh, bodies that are involved in that particular transformation and I think these things when properly identified we'll see that there is actually a, a major system that, that ties all this together yeah it's fascinating what do you think Darren when are you going for your test <laughs> Or for your volunteer? Me? Oh, yeah. I'm going vol- <laughs> to volunteer. Yeah, we're going to put in a Faraday cage with uh, some static electricity. Oh, there you go. <laughs> uh, you can do it in privacy. <laughs> you actually have to close the, door- the doors to the Faraday cage. That's true. Otherwise, um, it wouldn't be a Faraday cage. I think this thing is but- almost a Faraday cage <clears throat> if you wrapped it up in some aluminum foil. Yeah, we're in an old uh, commercial freezer right now, like a, oh, a, walk- oh, okay. a walk-in freezer, so it's pretty... Well, you actually probably are in a fair day. It's something that would be, be be very similar. You know, the one of the things on this celestial time and you know timing. You know, the analema, which I don't know that if a lot of people uh, realize, uh, uh, you know, how, what the analema is. Uh, but if you, what I noticed again, this was some of my comparison things. I noticed that the uh, sun god, uh, his headdress was the same shape of an analema, and an analema. Is, uh, uh, is it's you can plot it or graph it is the position of the sun in the sky at a certain time of day in and at one location measured throughout the year has the shape of a figure eight and what you have to do to identify this is you take a photograph of the sun every day in the exact same location at the same time and over a period of a year you will get the shape of that headdress uh, that the Pharaoh's wearing and he's representing the sun. And I see, I look at this and I say, oh my gosh, how did they know this? You know, did they know this? The sun God and his head is the same shape of the analema, which is the apparent path of the sun. How did they know that? So then I started seeing more similarities. You, if you see on the page next to it, there's actually another Pharaoh reaching up to the sun with these rays uh, coming down uh, that are actually measured exactly uh, uh, you know, during the period of a day, probably about six hours during the day, there is measurements that could equate to 15 or 20 minute increments. And they're all streaming down from the sun. So to me, the, I made the relationship of this analema and the sun god. And then come to find out, analemas are everywhere. They are the basis for uh, uh, major calculations. And what you do is you have to face north and you um, uh, set up your graph. And there's a lot of explanations in the book. Now, this analema is actually pretty simple. And I think all of this stuff, ancient technology, is very simple. You can create your own analema for your listeners out there that want to experiment with this. All you need is a south-facing window with a window sill. And what you do is you place a shiny object, a little piece of stone or a coin or a piece of glass, a piece of crystal. And every day as the sun passes from east to west, when it reaches that area, it will cast a shadow it will reflect up to the ceiling in that room Mm. now if you if you put a dot there 
If you did a dot and you did that every day for a year, you will draw that figure eight on uh. your ceiling. And that will be a personalized analema that you created. It's actually a timepiece. It's actually a calendar. It does many, many things. But making that association. And then when I saw that the game pieces on this so-called Senate game uh, was the same shape as the analema, and that's how I made the correlation with the sun, shadows from the sun. And I started experimenting with it outside. So this analema is uh, really important, and ancient history is just riddled with examples uh, uh, everywhere. It was a really important part, and I believe for astronomical calculations, that's where you start. We start with the, uh, uh, the North uh, Pole Star, and then we evolve from there, that all the calculations would, would evolve from that point. Isn't that the symbol for infinity as well? Yes, well, yes I mean, it I, is. I mean, that kind of yep. makes sense, right? Yep, yep. Yep, very, uh, a very similar, very similar shape. Yeah, but all planets make analemas, and they all are different shapes. And again, this is one of the things I believe the ancient Egyptians did. They actually embedded these shapes in their sculptures, uh, in their drawings. I think they coded much information into what they created, and uh, the legacy they left. You know, as a matter again, just to re to interpret these things. You know, there's this fixation that everything is in the next life. It's all about the the uh, afterlife. Yeah, yeah. I don't believe that is true. I think if that one word were changed and showed that it was a daily life or daily activities, all of a sudden these images that seem out of context would make a whole lot more sense. How would you how would you map or measure the analema of a planet of a, another planet besides the sun? Well, I mean, the sun would be easy because, like what you said, you could just use you, uh, reflective reference. You, you could do that. I uh, uh, obtained uh, uh, photographs of the analema, not the photographs, but drawings of, of the other analemas. There's a whole series of them. All the planets within our uh, uh, solar system make a, a shape. They range from an oval shape to a teardrop to another uh, a, a shape like the, uh, that, the Lazy 8. Uh, but they all have their specific, uh, uh, I would call it their energy pattern or their signature uh, and I, I have recognized and identified many, many of those shapes in a lot of the Egyptian artifacts and uh, uh, reliefs and drawings. You'd have to do it with uh, what, what, what the, people like, couldn't like see like a ninety little, degree, like a ninety degree, uh, my little angle, gun. angle thing. Yeah, with a simple telescope or some sort of line, right? You just ninety that up to your ceiling and. <laughs> Oh, I see. That's from what the, the analema is, right? It's creating. I was yeah, assuming it's, like, it's creating yeah, your, it's so your every, right angle every day. If you look in that summer. exact same spot, the yeah. planet yeah. does this rotation or this symbol. Well, That's, I never like thought if, about if that. If you had planets, like an right? L and you pointed it where you need to point it, then wherever that other fucker yeah. is, like with a couple yeah. of lasers, it'd be easy. Yeah, yeah. So because they knew they were tracking these things, right? They knew that they behaved different than the stars, right? The stars just go around the, like yes. the same way yet these other little planets like move in a different pattern. So man, I've never yes. I don't think I've ever heard of, the, of that. Darren, have you heard of that before? The pattern no, that a planet makes think, like that? No, I don't think yep. so. Yeah, there there's a whole uh, series. Uh see what what I believe happens is it makes and sense. The, the, it would be an 8 though. That makes sense. Well, for the sun, yeah. though, the planets aren't. There's teardrops and all these other ones. Like. But it always yeah. is some sort of, isn't it always some sort of formation of an eight in the end? Uh, no. Oh. No, they're, they're uh, entirely different. Uh, and you have examples in the book uh, uh, of, the, uh, of the different analemas on, um, 
Uh, let's see. How do you, how do you right, I'm thinking that? if you did an analema on every planet, it would be an eight, though, of the sun on every planet. Yeah. Yeah, on page 108 of the, uh, in the book, you can actually see, if you're looking at it, you can see those, uh, those various shapes. But one of the things that I believe that happens is that there is what I call a portal of opportunity. And this has to do with the celestial timing. And this is what I believe the pharaohs and all the insiders understood. And what they did is they prepped the pharaoh uh, to be prepared for these uh, particular timing events. You know, the, the, the hourglass, uh, which doesn't necessarily mean that it's an hour. You know, the sand, the Egyptians were one of the first to, to devise that. And they could be set for three minutes or four minutes or an hour or whatever time. But I believe there's an opportunity, I call a portal of opportunity of about three to four minutes. And what has, what it, what happens is, is that we, we're covered, you know, with a canopy of stars every night. And we have all these gigantic stars streaming light towards us. And we are under that influence. Now, every once in a while, another heavenly body will get in front of that streaming light and block it. And I think this is a real key time, and I would call it a portal of opportunity. And once the shadow, say, from the Senate game board touched uh, what where there would be a major star visually you see it when it does it you immediately turn over the three minute or four minute glass and you've got three or four minutes just to complete your procedure and this is what i talk about i believe the celestial timing was such a key thing and you know planets react differently at different times of the day uh the the moon is an example you know is a tremendous influence on our planet so if we knew the times when it had a greater influence than others then those are the times we would work with. That's the time we would concentrate. So I believe this uh, so-called Senate game, which they never found instructions, and the interpretation of the name is a game of passing. That was the thing. And so I relate it to shadows. It should have been renamed or called a game of shadows because it's really uh, putting shadows down on, on through those, that little grid system uh, on, the, on the board, and it's actually telling us stuff. Uh, we just need to learn how to read it. Wow, that's interesting. Huh. Yeah, yeah, another one. <laughs> so, what have you left? Uh, is there anything else that you want to mention about that before we uh, before we start wrapping it up? It's it's just fascinating work. Well, uh, uh, we got the we got the timing, and we got the. Uh, all the, the energy is that, is that because of gravity, do you think? Or, we t is, or is it something different we don't know about? Or? No, uh, it doesn't have to do with gravity. It's just as simple as light traveling through space, uh, being intercepted uh, and, and manipulated. And I think that it's not just one uh, a situation. There may be three or four. It's, a t it's, it's sort of like a, uh, a, uh, a, um, a slot machine. You know, when you pull the lever and these numbers going around and they stop... Well, every once in a while, you hit the jackpot. They line up. Mm. You know, they uh, you have all the same. And I think it's uh, that's just a, a simple uh, explanation. It's much more complicated than that. But but it's when everything lines up, bingo. That's the what I call the portal of opportunity when atomic structure is susceptible to change, and that could coincide with the jumping of the atom. Which I tr I truly believe that is an opportunity. Uh, once it jumps out of orbit, it has actually unlocked itself and it recreates another orbit and it does this continuously. And um, uh, there are uh, quite a few elements that actually do that. Does this kind of line up with astrology as well then? I mean, is that what's really astrology is all about is, is um, capturing these portals in time? 
Okay, uh, it's part of it. See, there's been a huge, originally, you know, astrology was the, the, the dominating information in ancient times, and then it became astronomy. It was kind of a combination. And then the scientists got involved in it, you know, and started reinterpreting things. I believe it's a combination. I believe astrology has the mathematical formula to help uh, predict these times. Yeah, you know, we yeah, can yeah. predict. You know, and that's what it does. So we know to be prepared for it. We know that, okay, you know, in a couple hours, we have this amount of time. And, and that's where I think astrology comes in is the calculations. The actual astronomy then are the big heavenly bodies and moving around. You know, we're just through, you know, this, the, the Hubble telescope has just been an incredible tool to, uh, to see out into space and to see, you know, what's out there that we uh, have never been able to do. And as we learn more and more, I think we will find that it's, it's really simpler than we think. It's just a matter of how we understand and how we interpret it. Yeah, that's interesting. And that's what made me think of it is I was thinking who, who would, where would I go for uh, a list or keeping track of these little portals of time that happen? Right. Mm -hmm. And, and yes. it, it seems like you would go to astrology really. I mean, do you, I, that... is, do you know, do you have any idea of, of, of a list? Do you have a list of these, these times? Well, there, you know, there's some that we're all aware of, you know. When the next uh, one is, is that what you uh, want to know, Greg? Well, yeah. well <laughs> sure, there are numerous ones depending on what you want to accomplish. Now, you know, we have some major events, you know, during the year that we're aware of, you know, the equinox and the solstice. Those are major times, you know. Uh, you know, I don't know that any scientists, you know, uh, actually focus and try to do any chemical experiments during that period of time, but these are real, really key times. But there's uh, over a period of a day, day and night, night, uh, this energy is available to us, but it depends on what you want to accomplish because I think there are, there are actually many, many different formulas, uh, for anything that you want to do. And that would require a different star combination. I'm working with that, uh, uh, uh currently, uh, Julie, my assistant, who is a, a tremendous astrologer has many, many years experience. And we are working on some, some, uh, ways of trying to uh, predict these. Yeah, I'd love to keep in touch with you about that. I mean, and do some experiments around around those those points in time. We'll fly well, sure. ground down. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, we'll ground down. No, we're lo we're looking for volunteers for uh, experimentation. So if you're a volunteer, we'll take you up on it. Yeah, yeah, you bet, <laughs> you bet. But we're gonna have to mic them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So yeah, that's uh, it's interesting. Is there anything else you you think we should? chat about before we uh, yeah. before we wrap it up well uh, uh we could can i mention my website oh yeah for sure i mean definitely yeah. I mean, and i'm linking to i'm linking to you know all this in the show notes as well for people okay well. that would be great that would be great electric ancient egyptians.com uh uh 29.95 for the book uh, i'll personally autograph it uh, but again, it's just disseminating information. You know, we're not making any money on the book. You know, I mean, that's not a thing. This is not a moneymaker, but I just try to cover the costs of the, the, uh, publication and, and, and all that, but it's really an educational, uh, 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 for educational purposes. Yeah. Well, it is, it's fascinating. It really is. It, it really is great. To, it really gives you a different view of, of that and then also we'll be looking forward to seeing your work uh in carmen bolter's next uh series right yes so yes. that'll that'll be great and that's in october so Hopefully i'll, I'll link to that as well are you, are you doing any sort of presentations or anything like that 
Well, I do personal ones. You know, again, I'm pretty well settled. We live in Pagosa Springs, Colorado. It's nestled in the Rocky Mountains. And, you know, I have my uh, my workshop, which is quite large. I can give small presentations. I do. But I'm not into traveling so much or going any place. Uh, but I can talk. I can Skype. And, and I love talking about it. And I do little private. Uh, uh, that's how I develop some of my... Uh, my ideas, uh, what I did is I would invite, you know, uh, anywhere from 12 to 18 or 20 people, and I would give a presentation, and then I would have them fill out an anonymous critique, uh, you know, about the different ideas, and it didn't matter, and, and from a major cross-section, you know, from judges to doctors to people who knew nothing about this, uh, 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 scientists, and then over after doing about 10 or 12 of these, and each one after I did it, I would do one a week, for about 10 or 12 weeks, and then I would uh, go through and I would read. And I took all the constructive criticism serious. And the next time I gave a presentation, I would do a better job of explaining or doing that. And I kept doing it till I got everybody to pretty much agree that they agreed with what I was presenting. So then I decided that, okay, it's time to make a book out of it. So uh, uh, that was sort of, it took me almost a year, you know, to get to that point. But I did get some major feedback. I didn't want it to me be misinterpreted because this has nothing to do with sex. There is nothing about it. It's actually a physiological thing that men or males can do. And I think that it can be proven today. And if scientists take a different look at this, it, w it may take a whole different turn. If we can, if they realize the technology that's come about, you know, the fact that there is voltage, we can measure it, we can control it, we can uh, 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 make it bigger make energy bigger, uh, and, and that would be the key or the goal. Wow, good for you, man. That's great, eh? Refreshing to hear that you're just open-minded enough to, like, give, just let people critique it, and, you know, you can tell you're not in it for the money. It's just a real educational thing, and that's good. I, so might, I'm still, I still might end up in Colorado at some point this year. Yeah? Well, you give us a call. Come by, and I'll give you a personal presentation. Yeah, yeah, I might, I might end up I, taking you up on that. I was thinking of coming down there for four or five days and doing a little cruise around the state. You come down. We, we have a couple little guest apartments. I'd love to uh, uh, give you a place to stay, and we could really talk. Yeah, yeah. Nice. I look forward to it. All right, James. Well, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a great chat. Okay, but well, my pleasure. And any time, I'm uh, happy to spread the word. All right, good stuff, buddy. We'll send you a link when it, when we're all done here. And uh, yeah, take care and keep in touch. Encourage okay. people to buy the book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks. That, thanks thank James. you so okay. much. Uh -huh. Bye bye. My pleasure. Bye bye. And that was our chat with James Ernest Brown. That was a good one. Yeah. I see you getting all excited over there. Uh, yeah, yeah, like, I I just, man, I think it's he's onto something. I think he really is onto is that something. that an electrode in your pocket? Or? Is that a gold I could almost see the I could almost rubber? see the defeat, though, in, when he said it wasn't a sex thing. Yeah, well, <laughs> geez, I could still make it one. <laughs> <laughs> That's your response. <laughs> nice. No, you know what? It's... Uh, I love it because he's done decades of research. He's put all these boards together, these sort of vision boards, like these big books, and he's gone through all the work, right? These people that have done all this work, they're, they're coming up with really interesting stuff, right? Absolutely. The hand mirror thing is, is a perfect example. It's this little picture. It's this little hieroglyph of a thing that they hold, right? And just because it's shaped like a hand mirror, people call it a hand mirror when really he's showing that this could definitely be a capacitor. You know? Well, this guy's definitely got something tied to his dick. In this picture, so. Oh, there's tons of them. Tons of them. 
I encourage people to check out the book. It is pretty visual. Yeah. Um, but not sexual. So where are you going to get, are you going to spend the money on all these gold toe? Can you buy a gold toe cup? Have you looked into that? Toe cup? What's yeah. a toe cup? That's what you put on your toes. A toe cap. It's a cup. It wouldn't be a cup. It's like a little cup. Uh, a cap is smaller. A cup is bigger. What could you use instead that what you could just buy? Because I don't think you can go get gold tongue covers. Well, the, the other thing he didn't talk about in our interview was the sandals they wear. Um, they wear gold sandals as well to keep their feet on the ground. Like, and they're not. They're not like uh, decorative. They're functional. Yeah, but gold yeah. ain't cheap these days. Yeah, especially these days. Gold sandals yeah. are probably like fucking ten grand. <laughs> well, they're probably just gold plated. I don't know how thick it needs to be. You could just get them fucking chromed. Yeah, get them gold plated. Just go get your sandals chromed. Get your some gloves yeah. chromed. Yeah. You could get your glove chromed, or you get like a Little fingertips chromed. Yeah. Not yours, probably. It's probably a pretty hot process, but you could probably make a mold and do it like that. Yeah. And then pop them off, and then tongue. One for your balls. Like superpower Reiki machine, like. And then put you in here with a bunch of cats. <laughs> <laughs> we'll bring you in Static after the cat fight. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, that was a good one. Uh, check out James's work. Big thanks to James for coming on the show. Um, another show with no commercials. I don't remember any commercials. You remember any commercials? I don't remember any commercials or any any even any fake commercials talking about portals to or Amazon squatty or, anything like that. Nothing, or anything. Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so check out uh, ca slash support for all the different ways you can help us stay that way. There's also a whole bunch of these links in the show notes for supporting oh, the yeah, show. You, so yeah, you can go to player. Yeah, you can go to, uh, you know... Show notes, click support, click yeah. on 20 bucks a month. Art. Done. Five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, one buck a month, whatever you like. Or you can do a one-time donation yeah, as it, well. It really does help, though, with the fixed, or fixed bills here and stuff yeah. to, to get them Donations covered, yeah. of $25 or more. I have some shirts in. T-shirts, yeah. Yeah. Check Instagram out. I've got a picture of the shirt on Instagram. Are they new ones? Is there anything different about them? No, I already different. have them. Are they white? They're gray. Gray. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, we're doing the art thing now as well. So check out, uh, ooh, I don't know the link off that, lostbread.com slash American Pie or something like that, but it'll be yeah. in the show notes. Um, lostbreadcomic.com. Lostbreadcomic.com. There's a lot of lost breads without the comic. So lostbreadcomic.com, and it's easy to find the Grimerica Pie. Yep. Or you can email Nap directly, nap at grimerica.com. Last can, week's dinner was Justin Edelman again, I believe. Uh, no, no. No, it wasn't. It no, was... Uh, somebody else. Rizzo. Rizzo. Rizzo Aquila. Yeah. Probably pronounced that wrong. Yeah. Aquila. Aquila. Anyway, thanks for the art. Check out uh, that or the Twitter. There's lots of info on the Twitter on how to get your art in there. And actually, we've got, I think... Last week we had eight or nine entries. This week I think there's four. Anyway, we appreciate that. Support the show. Spam Graham. Spam Graham. G-R-A-H-A-M at GrahamAmerica.com. Yeah, if you haven't. Send me your stories. If you can't send us feedback. art or cash, send us content. Yeah. Stories, feedback, things you think we should know, things we fucked up. Yeah. 
And uh, what else? And the last thing, the easiest thing you can do, helps out probably the most. Tell a friend? Tell a friend about the show. I think that's about it. So do all those things and then sign up for the newsletter. Because there's still only about 5% of you signed up for the newsletter. So that's not acceptable. Yeah. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next week.